It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. You're very welcome to the Mick Clifford podcast. Every week, this podcast will bring you a slice of current affairs you might find engaging and informative. We look at the big stories of the week and we also hope to delve into some of the off-agenda stories that are featured in the Irish Examiner and give you our unique interpretation of those stories. Now, this week, there was major controversy, I think it's fair to say, on the subject of a proposed commemoration for members of the Royal Irish Constabulary, which, of course, is the police force that was in operation in this country from the mid-19th century until independence was achieved following the Anglo-Irish Treaty in 1922. I think it's fair to say some of the debate during the week was strident and driven by anger and some of it had some nuance and perspective, particularly that which came from historians who have studied the period. Joining me now is Dr Mary McAuliffe, who is a historian and a lecturer in gender studies in UCD. Uh, Mary, you're very welcome to the podcast. Can I ask you first, in general terms, how do you think the whole issue unfolded? Well, it seemed to unfold very quietly initially. Um, I didn't notice it until last uh, Sunday. Um, Apparently, there was a a press release on the 1st of January about uh, the commemoration. I hadn't heard about it and I generally would know what's happening. And often I get invited to these things because obviously I work in this area, but I'd I'd gotten no invite and no email. And indeed, many people I know hadn't. But apparently it was going to be just for... Uh, the members of and families and descendants of RIC DMP members. But and, ma- and mayors politicians also, yeah, politicians. And politicians, mayors and politicians. So it seemed to be a very small commemoration. And um, I suppose in the post-Christmas period, people had plenty of time to be on social media. So it, uh, this, this black and tan hashtag started th- trending and that's what got my attention. Um, I went into it and I thought like black and tans trending in 2020. It, it, it's a bit early really in the commemoration period and read then with um, incredulity, I would say, uh, what people were saying and about the commemoration and what was going on. And um, I, I did, as as people may have seen a, a little uh, Twitter thread myself, uh, just, you know, the, the trying to bring some I suppose, nuance and complexity to what we are going into a very complicated period of our history. Um, And then it just took off from there. Um, I, in many ways, I think the government misstepped on this. And the minute the controversy broke, they they doubled down, which, you know, politicians seem to do on most things that they're they're um, challenged about. Um, I think the, the spinning in media communication around it wasn't very good and doesn't reflect well on on the government. Um, and I think they didn't explain the, their uh, ideas behind this com- uh, commemoration. It's beginning to come out a bit now, and I believe there's uh, um, some articles by uh, the HARP, the, the Police Historicalist Society, who were the um, people who were also um, behind the planning of this. 
Um, and I do feel uh, very sorry for them because they're, you know, people like um, Jim Hurley have done excellent work in uncovering the records and archives or the of the RIC and, and listing all the names. So and a point was made yesterday that more people have ancestors who were in the RIC than were in the IRA uh, because the RIC were there since the 1830s. Uh, so generations and generations and generations of them. Uh, there weren't that many IRA people, um, even though large swathes of the country claim relationship with them. Uh, so, you know, we have to understand those complications. And that got all sort of flattened out in many ways by the initial discussions. I think that improved as the week went on, particularly as historians started to engage with it. But even that, Mary, as you say, um, you're someone who's obviously a very big interest in it. You're a historian and you've done work in the area. And yet you yourself, as you said, you only became aware of it last Sunday, like most people. Now, when you contrast that with the care that went into the 1916 commemorations and everything was nuanced, everything was there in advance, it was put out. It seems a bit crazy that nobody, as you said, even even somebody like yourself, was really plugged into that this was going to happen and the potential for it to be taken in a particular way. Yes, I, I, I wonder and I suppose it will come out as people look back and, and uh, as, as a friend of mine said, who works on, uh, you know, looking at commemorations, this will lead to several articles and books and discussions. It's it's given a lot of fodder for, for scholars to unpick and unpack. Uh, I suppose it was the Christmas period, you, you know, you're taking your eye off the ball. There is that. But also um, the model followed in 2016 led to that care uh, about commemoration. It was consultative, it was wide ranging, it was local and regional. There were lots of meetings, many of which I went to, particularly on the women, as that's my uh, special area of expertise and interest. Um, And that led to very nuanced uh, commemorations at local and regional level that fed into the national commemorations, which are always like big and and sometimes do miss the complications. But in 2016, they managed to avoid making any huge missteps. There were a few little, uh, like the first promo video of uh, the 2016, if you recall that, with with all with Bono and the Cliffs of Moher and Bob Geldof and uh, sports people and not not a signatory of the proclamation at all. Yeah, exactly. um, But... You know, they they got a bit of a kicking about that and went back to the drawing board and went through that consultative project. And I must say, uh, the minister at the time, Minister Humphreys, was was very good in driving that. Um, And uh, the other big thing there, of course, being that 1916 commemorations are relatively straightforward. And, you know, what happened relative to the the more messy scenario that we're moving into now historically. complications as well. I mean, I really enjoyed the 2016. Uh, I was involved in a lot of exhibitions in both you know, uh, researching them and 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 uh, contributing to them. But I also really liked the creative uh, commemorations that happened, and I think they were well funded at the time. We seem to have moved away a bit from that model. There is the Countess Markovich Arts Award for um, women for commemorating women and looking at women at this time. But there was a more broad based funding model and consultative model. There were some missteps like the North King Street Massacre. Yeah, tell us about that. Well, that was uh, that happened towards the end of Easter week, 1916, where in North King Street, which people may know is up near Smithfield um, in Dublin, uh, in Dublin. Yes. Um, 
where a lot of there was a lot of uh, really nasty fighting around that. That's kind of the four courts coming up to the GPO garrisons um, and the um, British soldiers at the time were finding it very difficult to basically get control of the streets and in frustration and in heightened uh, feelings during wartime. These, uh, you know, massacres do happen. Uh, but they um, searched all the houses on North King Street, which, of course, at the time would have been full of tenements. So it was inner city, working class Dublin. Uh, they separated out the civilian men and women and children that they found there and basically herded uh, a crowd of men and young boys, like teenagers, into a basement where they were all shot and bayoneted to death. Um, that, of course, didn't reflect well on the behaviour uh, of the British troops that were uh, on the streets of Dublin during the 1916 Rising, in the same way the shooting of Francis Sheehy Skeffington didn't. Um, but it was the local Stony Batter and Smithfield People's History Project in collaboration with local residents that made sure there was a plaque put up to the um, uh, North King Street um, murdered, basically, those who were massacred in North King Street, uh, and had to really work to get some funding to get that together. So there was no real government involvement with that. There was some funding from Dublin City Council, um, but the government did try and, and step away a bit for the more contentious issues, even in yeah. 2016. And, 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 uh, and they were able to sideline them because, of course, the whole big march on O'Connell Street and the reading of the, the proclamation covered over a lot of what was being avoided, even then. And I, I read a piece you wrote, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you seem to suggest that some of that may have had to do with contemporary politics to the extent that it didn't want to uh, pr present something which, for instance, today's British politicians, whatever, may find offensive or, or going over the top. Well, yes. I mean, uh, commemoration is a, is a mixture driven by contemporary politics and also by remembering and by historical study and, uh, and all that sort of thing. Uh, and of course... In contemporary politics in 2016, we were right in the middle of this blossoming good relationship with our, our nearest neighbour. Uh, the visit of the Queen had happened, the uh, Good Friday Agreement. Nobody wanted to destabilise that. Uh, nobody wanted to start any big arguments with, say, for example, the unionist community. The First World War commemorations, where we did rightfully commemorate the involvement of tens of thousands of uh, those from both traditions on this island who fought uh, on the Western Front and, and in various other um, areas in the First World War, like Gallipoli, for example. Um, and that had been done very well and was 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 quite successful. Uh, I think the necrology wall in Glasnevin was contentious, but, it, you know, they managed to get that's that the over wall, the wall. That's the wall where, where they commemorated all the dead, all the 90s, dead from 1916, in, including the British soldiers. Including the British. And the two DMP, unarmed DMP constables who were shot, uh, in the first day of the rising, you know, so there were arguments made to doing that because it was it was a, a kind of a contained period. It was a week uh, and uh, up in, uh, in the middle of the war. Um, so there was so much there were so many layers to be commemorated that a lot was done sensitively and a lot was was done well. There were some small missteps, but not hugely. And and uh I think then the government thought, OK, we've done that really well now. That's the that's the hardest part of it done. Phew. Uh, let's just get on with it. And unfortunately, we are going into an even more difficult phase. Yeah. And if you were to, 
I mean, as you say, 2016 relations with the UK, etc. If you were to fast forward now to uh, 2020 and, you know, to some extent, looking at it this way, there's talk with Brexit and everything of a border, Paul. Uh, the idea of, un- of a united Ireland would seem somewhat closer, however far away still. Uh, relations with unionists in the presumed eventuality that we could all be in one state in, on this island. And you'd have to wonder if they're looking down at this and they're saying, well, hold on, from 100 years ago, you can't come to terms with the tradition that the RIC represented. How can you expect us to uh, come to terms with, for example, what they were subjected to by um, military action by the IRA, for instance, the provisional IRA? That issue seems to have um, been missed a bit, I think. Well, I think some unionists are taking a little advantage of this argument that uh, this kind of internal argument we are having uh, by saying, oh, you know, this has really put a United Ireland back. Not that they ever wanted a United (laughs) Ireland on the cards in the first place. Um, And also, you know, you know, you could counter that narrative in saying that a lot of unionists didn't trust the RIC because it was a majority Catholic organisation. Its officer class may have been Protestant in the most part, but most of those who were in the RIC were Catholic, um, lower middle class uh, from those solidly farming rural backgrounds. Many of them, I would say the majority of the RIC, if their politics were known, would probably have been constitutional nationalists, some indeed possibly militant Republicans. But the broader issue is that they represented, irrespective of personal uh, politics or whatever, they represented the Crown they in did. Ireland they effectively. Did. And this is what unionists would would, would, would point w- at. Would point at, yeah. But you, you have to say to them, well, yes, they might have represented the Crown in Ireland, which they did from the 1830s onwards. And yes, as, as a lot of people talked about over the last week, they participated in evictions. They were very much part of the arm of the state during the land war. Uh, during the famine, they put down the Fenian Rising, which is why they got the Royal. They were the Irish Constabulary to begin with. They were an armed kind of semi-militia organised uh, arm of a British state uh, um, based with the government based in, in Westminster. Um, they were very different from the um, uh, British Bobby on the beat in England. Uh, the colonial aspect, that, that, that colonial aspect came into it. And, and Vicky Con- Conway from DCU has written a really good book on this. I heard her talking about it uh, yesterday saying, you know, this they, the, the RIC in Ireland are a very different type of police force to the police force in England. And it is about uh, keeping an overview on behalf of the state of the Irish population, which is not considered too loyal but they also were community policemen. You know, they did the necessary within the communities and they did, you know, they controlled potching, and making more, and fair, all that sort of thing. Prior to the, prior to the upheavals of, of 1916-23, at that point you make about them being community policemen, to a large extent, their work consisted of what we would regard as normal policing. Yes, they did a lot of the normal policing. I mean, you can look at, for example, the records uh, released by the National Archives in the last few years about the DMP 
and they're watching of Republicans. It's and Dublin were, Metropolitan Police. Yeah, the Dublin Metropolitan Police. They're watching, for example, before 1916, people like Tom Clark. And it's very interesting to say, see, like, they're obviously standing on corners watching who's coming and going from his tobacco shop. And, you know, you can you see all the names, some of whom they know, some of whom they don't know. So they, they're, they're, they're the intelligence gathering division as well as uh, the policing, normal policing division of the British state. And they are, um, but it was also a very good job. And this is why a lot of um, Irish men joined it. It was uh, akin to a job in the civil service. Um, you you were, lived in barracks. You were, uh, you had to uh, leave where you were brought up and you went to another part of the country. So, uh, and, and very much the RIC are a centralised controlled force. But, they are in every part, village and town of the country. They may have been feared, but they were also part of the history and the community. Yes, and as you said, it, it was complicated to some extent and you had individuals. Now, you, you, I saw you mentioned someone from your, your own neck of the woods in broad terms, North Kerry, Jeremiah Mee. Mm-hmm. Tell us about him. Well, Jeremiah Mee was an RIC constable based in, he was from originally Kilkenny, I think, uh, based in Listole um, barracks during the War of Independence. Um, and by the time he and his fellow mutineers um, in June 20, 1920, I have to remember which century, 1920, uh, resisted orders from the divisional commander, a guy called Smith, um, to shoot to, uh, shoot to kill, basically. Uh, Smith just said, you know, if there's any suspicion, just shoot. And, and it was all about this brutal policy of reprisal. Come down hard on the local power population, terrorise them. It's a way of stopping support to the IRA. Because, of course, they knew this is how the guerrilla warfare was being so effective. There were very few members, of active members of the IRA, and they were in these flying columns going around the place. But, of course, they had huge support from the civilian population. They had the safe houses, the arms dumps. Uh, people, women in common Amman were providing intelligence. The people in Listole were watching the comings and goings from the barracks and telling them what was happening. Um, and what me said, that he was an Irishman and he wasn't going to do this, this shoot to, to kill policy, basically. Uh, and the Listole mutiny happened then in June 1920, about 13 of them or so. 13 RIC members. Yes, refused those orders. Now, me leaves uh, and it becomes a, a cause celebre in the newspapers and it does lead to a lot of uh, resignations, dismissals from the RIC of older RIC members who are there pre-1920. And in many ways, the RIC was becoming diminished from 1916 uh, they're by by the time the black and tans start coming into the RIC, they've been withdrawn from a lot of isolated barracks, which are now being burnt out and burnt down. It's huge burning of of, of abandoned barracks um, throughout the country in this at this stage. Um, there is no recruitment or very little to no recruitment into the RIC um, in this period, 1918, 1919 into 1920, because it's not a good job anymore. And that just has changed. On, on, on that issue of older RIC members, I mean, is there a case to be made, for example, you go back to 1916 and prior to the rising, there was very little major sentiment in the country for independence or anything. This obviously changes very quickly over a period, a very short period between then and 1919. And some of these guys might have been in there since the 1880s, the 1890s. Yeah. They've been in this all their lives. Maybe they were slow to cop on 
to uh, and do you know what I mean to act in that regard and, and, and they ended up staying in there they weren't necessarily uh, as you say their personal politics could have been probably well they were in favour of independence I'd say home rule for the majority home, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah they would have been constitutional nationalists and indeed if home rule had happened they would have continued to be the police force of the state Um they, I, I would say there is both that, but also a lot of them would have had to stay in to get their pension, mm. um, to get their full pension. And I mean, you know, you've put in 20, 30 years into the uh, this job. Um, you're close to, to, to the time when you can leave with a full pension. This is a poor country. You know, the, what else are you going to be doing afterwards? There's no industrialization. What jobs could you get if you left then? Uh, so you know, that full pension was probably as attractive as any ideology that would be making them stay um, longer in the RIC when it was becoming a bit more untenable to be in the police force. Yeah, and the other thing that arose during the week, and I've seen it in a number of places, and and people have enumerated the atrocities, and there were some horrible atrocities perpetrated by the RIC, apart even from those of the Black and Tans or the Auxiliaries. But if you arrived into the debate and started reading that this week, you might well be uh, end up of the opinion that largely the atrocities only happened on one side or, or the spreading of terror only happened on one side. No, um, well, of course, war. War is a complicated yeah. business. Um, and for example, the RIC, uh, the, a major boycott start, starts of all the RIC by the IRA and Common Man. And Common Man are very effective in carrying this out. Uh, you know, don't deal with them, don't talk to them, not just them, but their families. Uh, and their families are living in the community. Um, and oftentimes their their wives, wives and children are sent fleeing from those communities. They feel unsafe. Um, some of them go to England. Some of them go to back to their families of or- origin in, in whatever part of the country they were from. Um, so there is there is you know terror on both sides in many ways. Now that's not it's it's not a fifty fifty yeah. equivalency, um, but the the RIC the Crown forces if we want to give it the, the total uh, totality of them with the Black and Tans and the Auxiliaries follow a policy of reprisals. Some RIC like the Listole crowd refuse it. Some participate. Many of them participate. It's part of their job. Um, and they are part of the burning of Blaubrigan and of Cork and indeed of my mum's hometown in North Kerry of Ballylongford, burnt twice. Uh, John B. Keane called it the phoenix of North Kerry. It arose from its own ashes. Um, so, you know, there are those attacks. There are attacks, isolated uh, t- attacks at midnight on communities, uh, isolated farmhouses. Can you imagine the terror of that? A big crossly tender arriving into your front yard with at least 10, if not 15, uniformed men with hobnailed boots, um, banging down the door, getting out the, the people in their night clothes out into the, um, into the yard, burning down the houses or at, at, at the very least wrecking them. Um, destroying their properties, killing or stealing farm animals, chickens, uh, taking away any alcohol they found. And particularly for women, uh, many times if there was a su- suspicion that the girl was in, or the young woman was involved in coming to Mon, um, they would isolate them and, and, and at the very least cut off their hair. What other indignities as the women talked about they committed is open to interpretation, but it does seem to suggest types of sexual violence was going on as well. So that's real terror. That's about terrorising a population. On the IRA side, what they're doing is trying to make the population, for the majority of the population, they are behind the IRA. 
they, you know, either tacitly or actually um, providing the safe houses, etc. But of course, they're very aware of the problem of, in you know, spies. Uh, and quite a number of people are shot as spies who may or may not have been so. And quite a number of young girls and women are attacked and hair bobbed, have, have their hair cut off quite roughly and, and maybe other types of violence committed on them for company keeping. And that would be, they might be suspected of, uh, you know, fancying an RIC guy yeah. or a soldier or stepping out with them or, you know, having any connection. Uh, a, a woman, uh, I recall in my research, was attacked for uh, selling milk to the RIC. So that was part of the boycott. Um, and she had, that was in Roscommon, and she had three pig rings driven into her buttocks by uh, the local IRA. You know, this was, it was a particularly horrific time and it was a particularly, um, violence on the civilians was particularly awful at this time. That was a huge element to it and the, the, the nature of the conflict was the impact on civilians in, in, in that regard. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Because it was a guerrilla warfare, you know, you don't have two armies facing off against each other. Yeah. Uh, where is the front line? And I would argue that the front line is often inside in your kitchen uh, or in your living room during this period. No, this um, whole furore, to a certain extent, began, well, it's one element of it, the public element, the Mayor of Clare, I think, I think he's actually a general election candidate, which may or may not have anything to do with it. Uh, Fianna Fáil man, Cahill Crow, he, uh, he was the one who initially said he wouldn't attend this, and I think that, to a certain extent, led off a chain reaction. One of the things he also said was that revisionism has gone too far. What do you think of that? Well, I think it's kind of a misunderstanding of revisionism. What do we mean by revisionism? And of course, we had the revisionist wars in Irish history, um, you know, in in the 80s and into the 90s. Uh, um, I I think we've moved beyond that in terms of Irish history. Um, You could say that, you know, what I do is revisionist history because I'm writing uh, and and many of my my, uh, sister historians are writing women back into the narrative in ways that they were never there before. If history wasn't revised, you, before you revise it was revised, it they the weren't time. there. You yeah. absolutely yeah. revise it all the time. And I think, you know, again, it's kind of like the government using the commemoration as a blanket, using revisionism as a blanket condemnation term is a kind of misunderstanding of what revisionism actually is uh, and how revisionism can be both positive and maybe negative can be used for a, a particular agenda. But I, you know, people could say I have an agenda. I do. I want to. I want women's roles and contributions in all aspects of our histories to be uh, back in that narrative, or to be written in for the first time into the narrative. So, you know, I would I would move away from this whole revisionism. It's kind of like PC gone mad. Exactly. Revisionism, I, revisionism gone I'd, mad. I definitely have to agree with you there. It's sort of a, a blanket term people yeah. use to, to sort out their own agenda. One other thing, and just I'd be curious what you think of this quote from Sean O'Fuelan, of course, a man who was subversive at a time when most people were submissive during, in the state, who also fought in the War of Independence and I think in the Republican side in the Civil War he may not have been active but he was certainly on that yeah. side but he, his father was an RIC man and there's a quote from him men like my father were dragged out in those years and shot as traitors to their country so be it shot for cruel necessity so be it shot to inspire necessary terror so be it but they were not traitors they had their loyalties and they stuck to them it's an interesting well, quote it's a very, very interesting quote and I would say probably has a, a real element of truth to, uh, to it I mean again these these men had committed their lives to a job 
um, and they were doing it very, very effectively. And again, I think, yeah, they, they, they were, they weren't traitors to their country, not, not the RIC. And I don't think you can call the Black and Tans and the Auxiliaries traitors. Although I'll probably be killed for saying this, they were sent to do a job. Yeah. They were Englishmen. Well, for the twenty percent of the Black and Tans, I think, were, were Irish, Irish or of Irish descent. Yeah, but the vast, majority, yeah, the vast yeah. majority were um, uh, English working class men. Who had who'd spent years probably on the Western Front or various other uh, theatres of war during the First World War? They hadn't been tested psychologically to see about their suitability for, uh, and they weren't. They were given three weeks, I think, training uh, once they came to Ireland, and then sent out into the countryside uh, and basically told. Uh, you know, batter the civilian population and the population into submission. And they did that. Um, so by their lights, they were doing their job. They weren't traitors to uh, their country. Their country, for the most part, was England or Britain. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, you know, war is hell, as the the oft-quoted phrase uh, and our war of independence which a lot of people try and look at as, as you know a clean patriotic yes, war was not that at all it was messy it was complicated it was hellish it was traumatising it was terrorising uh, and it didn't like all wars come to any satisfactory conclusion and uh, would it be fair to say also in terms of colonial wars um, when you go back into the likes of uh, elements in Asia like India against the UK or even say for example People would suggest the Vietnam War was a colonial war. This was different to the extent that it's messy that the relations between the two countries are so embedded, going back 400 years in terms of plantations, what have you, that none of that is straightforward. Absolutely, none of it is straightforward. And, and this is what makes it both fascinating and difficult to be a student of Irish history. Um, you know, it's it's uh, we we are right next door to each other. Um, we're not far away from enough from the British maybe to to uh, have or come to terms with our colonial history already. People are saying it's 100 years ago. Why are we still talking about it? Well, you know, 100 years is only a snapshot in North Kerry. They're still talking about what the Elizabethans did. Uh, in other parts of Ireland, they're still talking about what the Cromwellians did. Uh, you know, we it's going to take a lot longer to come to terms with our post-colonial uh, the legacies into our post-colonial histories and also work out this relationship with our nearest neighbour who happened also to be the people who invaded us. One of the other things that struck me during the week, Mary, the the, the debate to, to a certain extent was driven by social media, particularly Twitter. And and I know, for example, you had a thread on there which alerted me and I said, the first time I saw it, I'd be straight up, I just said, thank God somebody's bringing some new and some perspective to this. It was an excellent thread. But in general terms, the, the debate to some extent, even for example, as you said yourself, hashtag black and tans is what started, even though it had nothing to do with the black and tans. Well, you can argue about that, but largely it was the RIC. But the, the debate was driven by what is often driven in social media these days, anger, etc. And it was reduced to some extent to a goodies v baddies scenario. Now, that is what we had prior to any revisionism back in the days when it was a question of the war of independence was the virtuous boys gone out to fight the evil foe. Has public debate regressed to that extent in terms of what seems to have proliferated through social media this week? Uh, yes and no. I mean, social media can be a wonderful place to be on and, and I'm on it quite actively. Hands up here too, yeah. Yeah, um, and I learn a lot. 
Um, you know, and, cool. I, and it isn't just about, I'm, you know, I'm following the Australian bushfires and uh, politics and feminism and all sorts of different things. Um, but yeah, it can sometimes boil down to that, you know, your family took tea with the tans, basically. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, I, I, that's why I, I put up the thread, because I thought this is this is crazy, you know, like we... We we have to be a bit more, uh, complicate our histories a bit more. And uh, it was also a Sunday, so, you know, I wasn't doing much else. <laughs> so I decided to to make an intervention. Um, and social media gets blamed for a lot. But I think a lot of people also were watching. Then other historians came on board and we were all discussing discussing things back and forward. And, and like we had some disagreements, respectfully. Yeah, but that's the it difference. Well. The, the, it's it's yeah. communication in general. It was communication. Yeah. Uh, for example, I was having a, a back and forth with, with a, one historian and um, he corrected me on something, rightfully, and somebody went burn. And I went, you know, it was not a burn. It was a discussion. I disagree with some of the things he was saying, but, I, you know, we were having this discussion. Um, I think in Ireland, Irish social media, because we're still a small country, Sometimes that hysteria can get a bit out of control, but sometimes it kind of gets reined back in and we all start calming down a little bit. And then you begin to see the funny memes. Um, uh, what happens then, it comes off social media and you get the podcasts and the blogs and the newspaper articles and people begin to get more informed. And I'm the eternal optimist anyway. I thought, well, there are now way more people out there who know about the RIC, the Black and Tans and the Auxiliaries and what they did and they didn't do and what the IRA did and didn't do. And they're a bit more educated maybe about the War of Independence. You'll always have the people who will just say, that's it, I believe this and I'm not going to change my mind. Um, but I I think social media can be very positive. And informative. And informative, uh, when, when yeah. used properly, absolutely, yeah. 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 One other thing, Mary, and this is where I saw this in the piece you wrote in the journal during the week, and it's just I find it interesting. This is probably personal to me as much as anything because it's something that I, I, I've often wondered about. And you mentioned in terms of commemorating and and correct, very correctly, you, you mentioned in terms of commemorating certain people who had been involved in these times who were guilty of um, acts of violence against women. Um, absolutely. But you also, you, you pose this question, how do we commemorate the men who became the leaders of the Irish Free State but betrayed the ideologies of class and gender equality promised by the proclamation? I've often wondered about that to this extent. Everybody says uh, the proclamation is there. There was a possibility that we could have a completely new state of some equality, of gender equality, the rightful place of women, the rightful place of minorities, etc. And these men were all shot. Those who came after them betrayed them. Could I suggest to you that the proclamation was a fantastic document? It was not proofed, to put to use that word, by the church. It was not proofed by the people in uh, any democratic vote. Would it have survived irrespective of who lived or died in 1916? Well, yes, this is the question. You know, people say, oh, if Collins hadn't been shot, it would have been so much nicer. Um, and I think my mother would agree with that, but <laughs> she's a big Collins fan. Uh, but I, uh, yes, of course, you know, would would women's place in Irish society have been different and not that second class citizenship that came into being culminating in the Women in the Home article in, in the 1937 Constitution written by Dev? Um, I don't think so. I think, you know, uh, the, the idea that we had the most conservative of revolutionaries other than people like James Connolly and a few others uh, probably holds true. 
And we, we, we tend to then forget the other great power that was there waiting in the wings, biding its time, uh, the, the, the church. And when the Irish Free State is set up, basically social policy in healthcare and education is handed over intact and whole to the church. Um, so it's no wonder we got the state in many ways that we get. Uh, and also in a post-colonial state, so independence comes, well, a, a form of it, uh, in a divided Ireland in, in, in after the treaty and, and is pretty much intact then after the civil war. If Collins had been there or indeed any of the others, maybe if Connolly had been still alive, there might would have been Connolly some have difference. Would Connolly have gotten elected? Would Labour have stood aside in 1918? Uh, these things can drive you mad thinking <laughs> about them. Um, I think there might have been some slight differences had some of the others, or Griffith indeed, been still alive. Some of the others been still alive had the women not um, stepped aside from national politics. All six women TDs were anti-treaty. Uh, and most women TDs uh, who were elected through the 20s were uh, abs- uh, followed in a, a, a policy of abstentionism. Um, so you really only have Margaret Collins O'Driscoll, who is um, Michael Collins's niece in the Doyle. So you have no women's voice. Uh, who's the voice of the working class is Labour. But Labour is weakened at this stage and indeed um, they're really not impacting on too much. So... Yeah, the proclamation was a visionary document, document as all these are. Uh, and it, it's reflected again in the Democratic Programme for Government of 1919, another visionary document. But by the time we get to 1922, really what you have is a state that is, um, ter- you know, coming out of a war situation. Remember, we had been in a violent space really since 1913 and the lockout. And then 1914 and the the war of uh, the First World War. So war had been for almost a decade the default position of Irish society. So people are traumatised. People just want peace. Um, the Civil War had been bitter and bloody. Uh, you have um, people like Cosgrave in charge. Uh, they are not radicals. No. Uh, and so we get the state we got. Um, had there being others, I think we still would have gotten a similar, maybe not as bad. Yeah, but I suppose w- w- for women particularly. Yes. Yeah. One one thing that strikes me that, that could be said with some authority is that if Collins had lived, the civil war may not have got as bitter and bloody as it did. But again, look, speculation might have been worse. Could have been worse. <laughs> he could have. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely, Dr. Mary McAuliffe. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. That's it for this week, folks. I'd like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon. Uh, You can subscribe to us on iTunes and Spotify and you can let me know what you think at mick.clifford at examiner.ie or on Twitter at at mickcliff. See you again soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.